Greetings, my name is Douglas Skimple, Senior Fixed Income Portfolio Specialist for Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge with Diamond Hill. This podcast is designed to deliver insights into the capital markets through interviews with portfolio managers, research analysts, special guests, and other members of the firm with the goal of helping you, the client, develop and maintain your edge in this investment world. Each podcast is designed to cover a specific topic ranging from market insights to a deeper dive into our monthly industry perspective publications, to interviews with members of the portfolio management team, to ad hoc market updates as events around the globe dictate. Maintain your edge and learn more about Diamond Hill Capital Management by subscribing to this podcast. Thank you and enjoy. On this episode of Understanding Edge with Diamond Hill Capital Management, we sit down with John Lesh, co-director of research, portfolio manager for Diamond Hill Investment Partners, portfolio manager on the financial long short strategy and sleeve manager on research opportunity strategy. John is a sector leader for financials and specifically covers banks and alternative asset managers. John graduated from Indiana University in Bloomington and received his MBA from the University of Notre Dame. His industry perspectives piece covers Bank of the Ozarks and provides an in-depth look into this company and its outlook. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with one of the co-directors of research here at Diamond Hill Capital Management. So John, your industry perspective piece covers Bank OZK, uh, the bank formerly known as the Bank of the Ozarks. Uh, based on your piece, it's quite apparent that you've known this company for a pretty long time. So can you talk about uh, some of the background of your history covering the company and, and how it's evolved over time? Sure. Uh, so I've actually been covering banks here at Diamond Hill since I started in May of 07. And so if you go back during the crisis where a lot of the problems were unfolding were those that were most exposed to construction lending. So as any budding young analyst would do, you look for those that have the large exposures and Bank of the Ozarks was always sort of top of the list. And what I always thought was interesting with that was that the losses weren't materializing like they were with everybody else. So, you know, you keep thinking the shoe's going to drop at some point, right? Um, well, it never did, and we had actually shorted the company in anticipation of losses materializing because it had always traded at a premium valuation, even during the crisis, uh, to the banking group in general. And so we had put the short on, anticipating that credit losses in the construction book would materialize. They didn't. Uh, the stock continued to grind higher, and they were actually able to use their premium valuation on their stock as currency and doing a lot of attractive acquisitions, both FDIC-assisted deals as well as open bank deals coming out of the crisis. So it's one of those things that sort of highlights our model, I think, you know, so now I've followed it for a decade um, and having had that experience of an initial mistake, investing mistake uh, of looking at it as a short and shorting it uh, unsuccessfully. And now if I, having followed it for a decade, you see a lot of the mistakes that I made 10 years ago looking at it, I think people are making today looking at it. So you know, sort of where that came full circle, you know, it had always traded at a premium valuation, you know, not that long ago, traded four times tangible book value, uh, where now, you know, it's called it 175 of tangible book value-ish, uh, kind of back where it was in 2009, uh, which is pretty crazy given what's happened with bank stocks uh, in the last few years. So it's still growing at well above industry growth rates, 
Um, I feel like the market is misunderstanding their construction exposure again, uh, doing that sort of simple analysis of commercial real estate market is maturing, the economy might be slowing, you know, losses are going to show up, and just saying, okay, who's most exposed to this? Uh, looking and say, oh, Bank of the Ozarks or Bank OZK at the top of the list, let's put the short on that and or sell the stock. Uh, and I think that's kind of the same simple logic that tripped us up on the short side, you know, back during the crisis. So it really gets to, you know, what we talk about at Diamond Hill on the research side is understanding our companies incredibly deeply. And, and maybe this is the example of when you first came on board, as you were saying, not understanding it as well as you do now. Yeah, for sure. Um, and taking that hit, but learning from it, which is what it sounds like. You, you definitely learned your lesson and have found the opportunity there and, and maybe even more opportunity now. And I think you know, just from following having our industry specialist model, you know, I've had this ha happen to me specifically several times. You know, one of the other industry perspective pieces I wrote was about uh, an Oklahoma-based bank that was heavily exposed to energy. And so after energy sold off, what was that Thanksgiving of 14? Mm -hmm. uh, after energy sold off, all the banks that had energy exposure got crushed. And this is a bank that I love. If I mean, if I were to design a regional bank, it would look sort of like this. Um, and it was always just too expensive. And so just waiting for that opportunity to buy it. Um, and so when the market sells things in, indiscriminately, and you know, here's a company that I had followed for five, six years, same sort of thing, but it had just never been cheap enough uh, for our intrinsic value discipline uh, gave us the opportunity. So I mean, I think it just sets up perfectly for our model in situations like this, where you know, we could take advantage of people who might not know the companies uh, as deeply as we do. So what was what was the deciding factor in covering Bank OZK as opposed to maybe a different a different name? And, and for those listening that don't know, you know, each month we publish an industry perspective. One of the analysts is tasked with doing that. Um, it was obviously it was your turn. Yep. So what drove you to make that decision of OZK over someone else? Yeah, I mean, if you look at, you know, sort of my companies that are in our current portfolios, you know, I think this is one that's sort of an interesting, I guess, story for lack of a better word that sort of fits into describing our investment philosophy. I think the advantages of our process, the advantages of our industry specialist model and following companies for a very long time, learning from mistakes. I mean, you only have two pages in these industry perspective pieces. And so you want to be able to sort of pack as much in rather than just saying this is a cheap stock, we want to own it. So highlighting different themes, uh, and one of the other themes that I tried to touch on is the idea of finding compounders uh, that as analysts, you know, and I touched on this a little bit that, you know, sure, it's great to find a stock that, you know, trades at 75 cents on what we think is a dollar of value and have that gap close. But it's much easier if you can find a company that can grow that dollar value at much more attractive rates over very long periods of time and sort of let the business do the work for you instead of having to go out and find much more attractive investments all the time. Uh, and so when I did that analysis of looking at the historical growth rates of o Bank OZK versus, I mean, they're, they're playing another sport versus, yeah. you know, the rest of the banks. I mean, it, it's just leagues better than anybody else. Uh, and so when you find something like that that is also attractive and looks cheap, um, that's what gets us really excited as analysts. So you, you mentioned it briefly. So let's go back in time again where you learned your lesson on how OZK got through the financial crisis. Um, so how did they do it? You know, in, in, in somewhat detail, as much as you can provide, how did they do so much better than everybody else? What made them different? In other words, in your yeah. words, playing a different sport than everybody else. Yeah. So from a credit standpoint, which I think is kind of the crux of the how they get through the crisis, um, their underwriting is just much more stringent than everybody else was at the time. 
they're very specific about how they structure their real estate deals. Uh, their real estate is not just regular commercial real estate. It's housed within a sort of separate business within Bank OZK called Real Estate Specialties Group. Uh, they're meticulous about the underwriting. They ensure that they're the only sole secured lender in the deal uh, or senior secured lender in the deal. So they're always the last dollar to fund and the first dollar to get paid back on all these transactions. They require significant kind of real equity uh, sponsorship into these transactions. They have influence over who you know, the, the mezzanine investors are in the deal, such that if it does go bad, they know that the mezzanine lenders that are involved have the ability to kind of help see the projects through to fruition uh, and to protect, protect themselves. And that's the other thing I think that's interesting about the opportunity now is that you know, people doing that simple screen of saying, hey, look, they have a huge construction exposure. Um, you know, w when the cycle turns, they're going to take big losses. What people fail to realize that not only did they not take a lot of losses during the crisis from these portfolios, their underwriting has gotten even more stringent now than back during the crisis. So if you were to look at, you know, they have a chart in their company slide decks of you know, loan to values and loan to costs on their uh, loan exposures and kind of pre-crisis levels would have been, call it 70% loan to values. Now they're 50 to 60% loan to values. So you'd have to have even a bigger drawdown uh, in kind of the markets across uh, the country to have them had take any meaningful losses. And I think the other thing that is also important is that the core banking franchise outside of real estate specialties group is run so efficiently and they're so profitable, um, much more so than other banks. You know, they're running, two, you know, a return on assets is a common metric that people look at at banks. So they, they produce a 2% plus return on assets. Other community banks are kind of low ones. So, I mean, they're almost double uh, kind of the profitability of a regular community bank. So if losses were to materialize, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to lose money. And you can go back to the crisis. They were profitable every quarter through the crisis and every year. So even if losses did start to materialize, it wouldn't necessarily impact earnings. And it's not likely going to be a capital event where it's going to impair the balance sheet. Um, so I feel well protected in that sense, too. So hearing the story and the, and the thesis around it, it definitely sounds like one of those things that's too good to be true. You know, they're doing such a great job. So why aren't other managers finding them? Or are they? You know, is it harder to get, you know, invested in, in the company? Um, you know, how are we able to take a meaningful position? Are other managers not crowding that trade? You know, I think there are a couple issues here, and I've seen this with other investments of ours, too, where, you know, I followed this from when they were much smaller. And so now they are a larger market cap company where they might not be on the radar of some of the managers who might be eligible to invest in them now just because of their market cap movement now around $5 billion in market cap, where, you know, having followed them 10 years ago, they're meaningfully smaller. Right. So people just weren't paying attention. So I think you have people who now might have the ability to look at that as a potential investment who aren't as familiar. So you have that uh, coming into play as well. You've expressed your admiration for George Gleason, the current chairman and CEO, He's led the banks in 79, and, and you've compared him to what I believe is a gold standard of financial firm CEOs, Jamie Dimon. Um, what has been, what's his blueprint? What are his, are his fingerprints all over everything that's, that's happened with this firm? Is he driving everything or does he have a, a solid team around him? You know, how does that dynamic work within the firm? I mean, he definitely has a solid team and I think and on the level of engagement of CEOs that I've seen, I mean, going back to, I think it was the third or fourth quarter of 2014, uh, he was the only one that would answer questions on the conference call. So conference calls would start, Gleason would talk for 45 minutes about 
every minute detail of the business and then answer every question and not necessarily be punting to any deputies you know when he doesn't know the detail where you sort of get the sense that some of these CEOs who aren't in the weeds as much uh, don't have as much control over the details. Um, Gleason, on the other hand, who has meaningful economic in the bi- interest in the business, I think he owns close to $300 million worth of stock personally, uh, is very involved. But going back to 14, when I mentioned, they started getting other folks involved in the conference calls and exposed to Wall Street and you know, have made it very clear that there are other people that are capable executives behind them that are helping. Uh, but especially with this real estate specialties group, he signs off personally on every single loan that group does. Uh, so you know, he has raised a decent stable of executives coming up after him. Actually, just last night, they put out an 8K, sort of making some internal promotions uh, of different people within the organization. So they're clearly on top of that. Uh, I mean, Gleason is 64, I believe, but still very much engaged in the business. And I would be shocked. I mean, absent some personal health issue, I mean, I think he's going to be there for a long time. So one of the things we talk about here at Diamond Hill is succession planning uh, and making sure that we communicate to our clients if you know, a PM is, is leaving in, in five years, we let them know in five years, you know, we, or that time that it will be five years. Um, does Ozarks or OZK, sorry, uh, do they have something like that? You mentioned they've introduced more people. Uh, I would, you know, playing devil's advocate, I would say, well, Gleason's run this business. He's, he's been the, the main driver. Um, so he's 64, so say 10 years from now, because we are focused on the longer term. Are there names? Are there people that are in place that you feel comfortable can take over the reins of the company and keep it going forward? Yeah, for sure. And if you look at you know the real estate specialist group, there's 100 plus employees in that business in particular that sort of drives the business. You know, George is clearly involved and paying attention, but you know he's not out originating all the loans. He's you know signing off on the deals, saying yes, they meet our credit standards. But I think he's also uh, sort of adamant in enforcing the culture that has delivered the you know 20 plus years of solid results. Uh, and I think you know this latest quarter is a great example where he talked about having uh, to back off loan growth because he saw you know what he described as sort of stupid things being done in the market, and that he's not willing to take those kinds of credit risks with the business. And he's like, look, I'm willing to take the hit now in the short term of slower growth and you know people punishing the stock because we're slowing growth, um, but that's the best long-term decision for the business. And you know he also went on uh, a long discussion about you know sort of paying lenders to not make loans. And, you know, which is sort of very counterintuitive in the business and that, you know, saying you have to say these are our criteria for our loans. If they don't meet the criteria, we're not going to make the loans. And if your lenders are out there looking for deals and doing what they're supposed to be doing, but nothing is meeting that criteria yet, you have to be able to pay them to pass and make that decision. Because if, if all you're incenting them is to do is to jam volume into the bank, then you're going to end up you know, with bad credits that don't meet your standards. And so I think that's an important message that especially in a public forum like the quarterly conference calls, when he's reinforcing that every quarter that credit's number one, credit's number one, credit's number one, you can't slip on that. Um, that I think that that sends you know, the important message to those younger folks in the organization that will be leading it you know, after Gleason. So has there been any pushback from shareholders? Uh, I mean, obviously we understand what he's doing, but is there pushback from other shareholders that are saying, look, you could be out there making these loans and yes, losses may increase, but you've got to take on a little bit more risk, or is it such that the shareholders know the company so well that they understand and they're not gonna raise any issues? I haven't heard any complaints about that. I mean, I think the sell side, Wall Street sell side research is a little bit different in terms of how they respond to something like that, where they're so focused on, you know, what's next quarter gonna look like, or you know, they're lowering their full year loan guidance, yet 
their full year loan guidance, even if they back it off from 30% to you know high teens or low 20s, that's still a multiple of what the industry is doing. So I think people sort of lose perspective and you know, inst- have these knee-jerk reactions to quarters where, oh, they lowered guidance, but lose fact that, oh, they're still one of the most profitable banks out there, and they're still growing at a multiple of what the industry is in an environment for banking in general that's pretty difficult. Um, so I think you know, it's important to keep that in mind uh, in terms of actual other shareholders like us, I haven't heard any sort of pushback on that. I mean, my message to the company when I speak to them is you're doing the right thing. Um, don't make stupid loans, <laughs> you know, protect the balance sheet, do what's, you know, gotten you this far and created all the success. Don't make dumb short-term decisions. Uh, and, and last question, are there are there any other OZKs out there? So smaller firms, maybe where OZK, OZK was 10 years ago. Um, smaller firms that are doing it the right way um, but haven't gotten kind of the growth that we've seen from OZK over the last 10 so years? You know, I've increasingly become interested, you know, looking at the banking landscape at those banks that have sort of unique franchise value to them or a unique niche rather than just a plain commodity bank bank franchise where the only thing you really have to negotiate on is I'm willing to take five or 10 basis points less on my loan yield than, you know, the bank across the street. And so if you look at the banks that uh, I've recommended uh, for our different strategies over the last few years, most of them have had that unique niche, uh, whether it's uh, Silicon Valley Bank that you know has a unique niche with tech firms mm-hmm. out in California, or First Republic that has a unique niche with kind of the urban, coastal, wealthy, uh, and obsessive you know client service focus. You know, I'm much more interested in those kinds of franchises than I am just a plain commodity banking franchise at this point. So, I mean, I feel like having covered the space for 10 years now, that you sort of have cast the net through, you know, the 150-ish companies that I cover and know which franchises you like, and then you just wait. And, you know, sort of like we did with BOK, the Oklahoma bank I mentioned mentioned earlier, um, that you identify the businesses you like and then just wait for the price that you're willing to pay. And, you know, that's one of the things that's an advantage of our long-term time horizon. And as analysts and portfolio managers, we can do that. We can sit here and just wait for the right time to make the investment. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Hopefully, listener, listeners enjoyed this as well. Uh, thanks for your time. No problem. The views expressed are those of the research analysts as of August 2018 are subject to change and may differ from the views of other research analysts, portfolio managers, or the firm as a whole. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice.